one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Megan. And I'm Rachel. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Joe Biden's visit and you ask us what's behind the Labour attack ads. Also in today's podcast, we've got a special feature on cybersecurity in partnership with Fortinet. Joe Biden has just finished making his speech during his visit to Northern Ireland and we're recording straight afterwards. We're recording earlier in the week than usual on a Wednesday afternoon and we're delighted to be joined by our foreign editor, Megan Gibson, who also appears on our sister podcast, World Review. Thanks so much for joining us, Megan. Thank you for having me. So just give us a brief outline of what Biden said in his speech. What was his message? Yeah, I think his speech, there weren't really any surprises, but he did I think with a level of passion and conviction, you can tell this is something that he holds really personally. He spoke about the importance of the Good Friday Agreement and the legacy that it's had and how it is really an inspiration for his own country in the importance of establishing and being faithful to democratic institutions. I think a lot of that kind of can sound quite bureaucratic and technical, but Mm. he really brought, I think, a level of emotion to it. And obviously he knew the audience he was speaking to. He said, this is real. You've lived through this. You know what this means. I think it was very well done. I think it was very moving. And why is he here? Tell us a bit about his visit. What's he planning to do while he's here? Well, he's visiting Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland as part of a four-day visit. He landed in Belfast on Tuesday night. And on Wednesday, before he gave this speech at Ulster University, he met with Rishi Sunak for tea. And he also spoke briefly with all of Northern Ireland's party leaders. So, you know, the leader of the Ulster Unionists, DUP, Sinn Féin, Alliance leader, and the Social Labour and Democratic Party. He's here for part of the commemorations and celebrations of the 25-year anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. But he really made sure to highlight to the press that his main focus is he's here to listen. I think he and his administration are very wary of the idea of America coming in to, you know, tell people what to do. So he has been very cautious in that regard that he's here to listen. And when he's off to the Republic of Ireland, he's slated to visit not one, but two of his ancestral homes. He's heading to Loth, the home of the Finnegans and the Kearneys, his ancestors on one side of his family. And then he's heading to County Mayo, where he'll meet with some remaining ancestors on his father's side. Yes, he makes a lot of of his Irish heritage, doesn't he? How much is that part of his political persona? And how much is it part of his appeal in the US? I think some have been saying his visit, particularly to the Republic, may help 
him for domestic purposes. It's a huge part of his personal character. He's obviously not the first American politician to big up his Irish heritage, but I would say he's definitely one of the loudest or proudest, <laughs> certainly since JFK. And it is quite a huge deal. In the US, people's ancestral ties are hugely important to them. And especially in the Northeast of the US, Irish ancestry is very common and people really feel quite passionately about it. I think even Biden has said that there's no one more Irish than an Irish and American. From, from speeches, I mean, a lot has been made of his repurposing of the James Joyce line saying, when he dies, Ireland will be written on my soul. And he toured Ireland as a politician before. He has an honorary degree from Trinity College. And on this trip, he's brought his sister, Valerie, and his son, Hunter Biden. So there's a real sense that it's a working trip, but it's also a trip for him. He might need to make a bit more room on his soul, because I think in his speech, he said that he was also British as well as Irish. His father does have English ancestry, but I think he is very cautious of... He's known for his gaffes, but <laughs> off-the-cuff remarks in the past have led to accusations that he's actually anti-British. The famous comment to a BBC reporter asking for a comment and him saying, BBC, I'm Irish, before turning away and refusing to give him a comment. Oh. Or him professing sympathy with refugees and people coming to the US because he said his great-grandfather fled Ireland because of, quote, what the Brits were doing. <laughs> so there, there has been a lot of spin including from the DUP, saying that Biden isn't welcome and that he's actually anti-British and he's advocating for the reunification of Ireland. So I think he's very wary of that narrative. And so he's, I think, especially when he's in Belfast, he's going to be very careful of the comments he makes. But there's also the element of, you know, bigging up the U.S.'s role in the Good Friday Agreement. And it's not just the U.S.'s role, it's his own party, the Democratic Party's role in, in achieving the Good Friday Agreement. Biden himself played a part in reaching the agreement. He encouraged the Northern Ireland peace process from the time when he was a senior Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he was one of a part of a group of senators who were really pressing Bill Clinton to hold hearings on issues that were blocking that process. And it was also Biden who invited Jerry Adams to Capitol Hill during his two-week tour in the autumn of 1994. So there is an element of actually the U.S.'s role in highlighting that. That's really interesting. And we'll, we'll come on to how all of this is landing domestically in the UK next. But I just wanted to ask you finally, Megan, what does what's playing out with this visit tell us about the US's relationship with the UK at the moment? Because while you said his speech was as to be expected and quite diplomatic, the underlying message there was get back to the table, guys, get back into power sharing. And he talked about the importance of democratic institutions and reflected on the parallels with democracies being fragile, as he's experienced in the US. I think Biden realises at this moment there is only so much he can actually do. He's really pushing this idea that he's not here to meddle. He realises how fragile you could say this is. And he's really wary of stoking tensions rather than easing any of the anger or tension or making the stalemate worse. So I think he knows that there's only so much he can do. I mean, <laughs> even you can 
look at the brevity of his time in Belfast to know that he's really not here to do a lot. He's, I think I read it, he's, he's in Belfast for 15 hours <laughs> and the bulk of that presumably was spent sleeping last night. I don't think the idea is that really he's here to solve that stalemate. The question of the U.S.'s broader relationship with the U.K., I've lived in the U.K. for about 13 years now, and I just feel that is such a perennial question that gets raised constantly, is what's the status of the special relationship? And I think the U.S.-U.K. relationship at this moment is pretty much the same as it's been for years now, which is good and stable. I do think there is a lot of anxiety on the UK side about trade agreements and future trade agreements and what can be done to speed up that process. But I think across most major areas, the UK and the US are aligned and see future cooperation as something that's in both of their interests. Well, it's interesting that he's spending the bulk of this visit in Ireland then. And I know you said that there's sort of personal reasons for that. But does it tell us anything about the US's relationship with Ireland then or even the wider EU? I don't think so. I do think it is very personal for Biden. Now, obviously, the US's relationship with Ireland is very good, but it's a different relationship. It's one, I think, that's much more rooted in the past and common ancestral ties, just as it is for Biden. There is a stability and a strength to trade, but that's because Ireland is part of the EU. But in other areas, such as security and defense, the US is in much more aligned with the UK. Ireland isn't a NATO member. It's not on the UN Security Council. It's not part of Five Eyes or AUKUS. So it's the US and the UK that really have a lot of alignment in that regard. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Megan. That was really useful. Rachel, how is Biden's visit playing out politically here? Meghan mentioned some of the misgivings on the unionist side, the suggestions that he may represent (laughs) their political opponents rather than their own interests. Is it a win having him here? What does it mean? I thought some of what Megan was saying there about the anxiety on the UK's side in terms of the UK-US relationship was quite interesting. And that's played out as usual in kind of (laughs) some of the most trivial terms. There was a There was a story in the New York Times before Biden came to the UK saying that his time with the prime minister had been downgraded to a coffee and it was being referred to as a buy latte. (laughs) I love that. And there was a lot of obsession over, you know, how long Biden's handshake was with the PM before he moved on to other dignitaries. And you had Downing Street pushing back on the characterization of the meeting in the New York Times saying it's more extensive than that. That's not how we would refer to it. But in terms of how Joe Biden's going down with unionists, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the next few days, I think, Mm. because it is, as Megan was saying, it was a very heartfelt, very personal kind of speech that was trying to, you know, he he, he repeated the word repair, for example, and he Mm. spoke quite a lot about how a lot of women were involved in bringing about the Good Friday Agreement. It was very conciliatory. It was appealing to people who basically want to get Stormont mm-hmm. back up and mm-hmm. run it. But you have seen, for example, Arlene Foster over the last couple of hours accusing the president of hating the UK and some of the president's aides pushing back on that. So whether those voices become marginalised in the next few days, if the visit is having the kind of positive impact that Biden's team clearly want it to have, 
It'd be interesting to see if that plays out in the next few days. Yeah, very interesting. And of course, the context for all of this is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. What has it been like in Belfast? I know you've not been reporting from there. There have been reports of some tensions. Officers attacked with petrol bombs during Easter Rising parades in Derry. And it's, it, this seems to be sort of kids being whipped up by Republican sentiment. And I think there was some discovery of some pipe bombs as well. And we know that there's a major security operation around the president's visit. What does the atmosphere seem to be to you? It's hard to tell entirely without, without, without being there, as you say, but you'd expect high security from when a US president would visit Northern Ireland in any case, regardless of whatever yeah. time it was. And you do have disturbances that bunch around certain dates in Northern Ireland. There have been a higher instance of them since Brexit has risen, has inflamed some of the tensions in Northern Ireland. One of the things that Joe Biden mentioned in his speech was the police officer that was shot to mm. John Caldwell a month or so ago. So that there's an awareness, I think, that some of the problems that, are, that Northern Ireland has had in the past have been bubbling up again. One of the things that's been pointed out by politicians about attacks in, in Derry were that some of the people who were involved were actually were said to be born after the Good Friday Agreement was struck. I think so. that's a source of sadness, but I don't know if it's all beyond expectations at the moment or if people are too worried about security concerns while he's here. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think this anniversary, it's been anticipated for a long time because it was supposed to be the sort of deadline for getting a Northern Ireland protocol compromise struck. And in some ways, Rishi Sunak has been successful in hitting that deadline. But of course, as we were just talking about with Meghan, this visit from the president also highlights the fact that power sharing is not yet back up and running. And while, like you say, he was quite diplomatic in his speech and kept it quite personal, and he's said that he's in listening mode and doesn't want to come here and dictate what happens. His speech was nevertheless a reminder of what's not working in the region at the moment. There is an air of, a, of some disappointment as well. There are very few people who would say that the Windsor framework was a failure in and of itself. But one of the things that the government and a lot of people in Northern Ireland wanted it to achieve was to get power sharing mm. back up and running again. And the DUP just have not been willing to go back to the table and achieve that. So I think there is an air of disappointment as well and some sadness to attach to that, I mm. think. And you spoke to Jonathan Powell for our special Good Friday episode of the podcast. Can you tell listeners who didn't hear that episode, maybe they were busy over the long bank holiday weekend, what shape he thinks the agreement is in now, 25 years on, having worked on it? One of the things he said was he has worked as as it's needed to over the last 25 years. Mm. But I spoke to him about one of the things that he would have returned to now or one of the things that he perhaps didn't factor in when it was being negotiated at the time. And he spoke a little bit about, about and you know, these enforced coalitions where it's written into the Belfast Agreement that if one of, if the major unionist party or the major nationalist party wants to veto something they can and they can pull out of power sharing and he had a lot of concerns about some of the failures that had led to and how that could perhaps encourage corruption over a long term and kind of force people into voting ways that they mm. wouldn't necessarily vote in if they felt they were able to have a broader choice mm. so I think he echoed with, with the what is the alliance party's position which is that that kind of needs to be revisited at this point yeah that's really interesting and i do encourage all of our listeners to go back and listen to that episode because it's a fascinating chat after the break we'll answer your question about labor's latest attack ads if you're subscribed to the new statesman you can get all our episodes ad free on the new statesman app you can get it on both ios and android 
Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you'd like to take part in a live recording of the New Statesman podcast, join me and my colleagues Freddie Hayward and Ben Walker at the Cambridge Literary Festival on Saturday the 22nd of April at 6pm, where you can put your most pressing questions to us in person. Tickets are available at cambridgeliteraryfestival.com, where you'll also find details of other New Statesman events, including our debate on the future of the monarchy featuring Andrew Marr and Gary Young, and a breakfast briefing with our editor-in-chief, Jason Cowley. New Statesman readers get 20% off tickets with the code NSSPRING23. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our question this week is, what is behind Labour's attack ad? And I assume that the questioner is referring to one in particular, which you've been writing about, Rachel, but I'm sure many of our listeners will have seen it. It was put out on social media on Thursday, styled in a sort of Rishi Sunak style advert with his picture on it and his signature. And it asked the question, do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison, Rishi Sunak doesn't. And it's caused a lot of controversy, not least on the Labour side for being inaccurate, but also stoking up that kind of emotive, toxic politics over the idea of child sex abuse. Rachel, our question is about what's behind this. Where is this kind of ad campaign coming from, first of all? God, there are so many answers to that (laughs) question. I think I see it as a signal from the Labour Party that the gloves are off Basically, they want to paint Rishi Sunak as the Prime Minister and therefore accountable for all of the record of the current government, not just a few months that he's been in charge. Mm. I think they really want to strike at the heart of Rishi Sunak's very slick image and kind of want to undermine in the minds of voters that he's new Piet and therefore new broom. Because if you think back to, for example, when Boris Johnson came in, he gave the Conservative government, even though it had been in power for years, a new feel. It, made the, it felt like a Brexit party, for example, of sorts. And similarly, when Theresa May came in, she moved away from the idea of austerity in the George Osborne years. And I, I think the Leb Party is probably very much on its guard against that happening again with Rishi Sunak coming in. You know, these are ads that are going to be based around crime, the economy, some of those core issues that matter in Labour Tory marginals. For example, the Lib Dems local election campaign is focusing on care services and sewage. Whereas the Labour Party's campaign is on those 
core issues and is aimed at competing, I think, for those Conservative Party votes. And I think it was, to some extent, a message to people within the Labour Party as well, Mm. that they need to toughen up a bit and be prepared to be more fierce in attacking Rishi Sunak caused a lot of divides, which have been written about an awful lot. And I also just think it was intended to have a big impression and to make a big statement. And given this ad, the first one at least was seen more than 20 million times, you could say that they've had some success in that area. Mm, It's that sort of cynical way of doing politics, isn't it, where you cause controversy with something that is going to be divisive simply to get people talking about it. And like you say, in that sort of narrow sense, it's worked. But there are risks to a strategy like this, not least because in some darker corners of the internet, and even I've come across voters when I've been out and about on the campaign trail ahead of the, I think, local elections last year, people repeating back to me this untruth about Keir Starmer failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile when he was director of prosecutions. That's a conspiracy theory. It's not true, but it's a conspiracy theory that Boris Johnson brought up in the Commons once, you know, much to the horror of his own party. But when you bring politics down to these kind of levels, you do make yourself vulnerable to these kind of attacks that, you know, are simply attacks on your character that aren't based in evidence. We know that Rishi Sunak doesn't believe what it says on that advert. Except what you're saying, but from what I can gather, the assessment seems to be in the Labour Party that those attacks were coming anyway. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a great deal that Labour could necessarily do about those. So it has to start fighting its own corner. And I guess, this is my own guess, it seems like they've priced up the moral high ground in electoral terms and thought that it wasn't worth as much as some people may think it is. And they've gone down this road. But there are undoubtedly many politicians, not least in Keir Starmer's own shadow cabinet, who think some of this has gone too far and they're not comfortable with it at all. And it isn't how they'd like to campaign. A lot of it's driven, I think, by the campaign team led by Morgan McSweeney, who's the head of the election campaign, and Deborah Martinson, who's the director of strategy. They're the people who are behind these ads rather than any individual politicians and the signing off process. It appears to be that it doesn't have to go back past the Shadow Cabinet. But members of the Shadow Cabinet who have disagreed with it were left reading this piece by Keir Starmer himself at the end of it in the Daily Mail, which kind of says, even if people are squeamish about it, I stand by every word. So that's the position they're in now. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, because you then you get the situation of shadow ministers out on the media rounds getting a bit of a hammering. Emily Thornbury was floundering over it a bit, wasn't she? So I suppose it does put them in a difficult position. I think it really does. But I wonder if to some extent all of those rows are priced in to some degree and it keeps the issues that they want to talk about in the news and it keeps the government on the Labour Party's grid as opposed to the government's grid is one way of looking at it. But as you say, that may be the cynical politics. <laughs> yeah, the government's grid was, for a time, it was quite quite formidable, wasn't it? The antisocial behaviour stories, one story after the other, small boats. I suppose there had to be a way to disrupt it. The Labour Party's treating the local elections as a dry run for the, mm. the general election itself. So it's about mentally preparing their own troops for that and trying to, you know, impose their campaigning style. But I do think it's not likely to go away as a row anytime soon from what I can gather. (laughs) No, no. And what you think of the ad is useful for us as journalists because, like you say, it gives us a glimpse of how Labour may fight the next election on 
the tone of their campaign, but also on what topics. So crime, which we've spoken about many times on this podcast before, is going to be one of those battlegrounds. But also the idea of anticipating what the Tories will surely run as a presidential campaign, putting Rishi Sunak on the front of their leaflets and running it around him as a personality rather than the party, because the party's brand is so much less popular than his brand as an individual. And of course, there will be pit- pitfalls to campaigning like that as well, as I spoke to Professor Tim Bale about in our recent podcast about the Conservative Party and its future. You know, he, he made the very good point of how the Theresa May election campaign was intended to be a sort of presidential campaign and how badly that failed. Yeah, the ads themselves look the, look like the ones Rishi Sunak was, was putting out as when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer and he was releasing the furlough scheme and it had, you know, it was signed by Rishi Sunak. He's very slick ads. So this is the Labour Party trying to use that campaigning style against him. And yeah, just trying to explore that image that he's new on the political scene, shouldn't be held as as accountable as some other politicians. I think they want to really frame him as the head of the government and responsible for the problems of the last, what is it, 13 years? Brilliant. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about any more fallout from this kind of campaigning. Thanks so much, Rachel. Now, I'll hand you over to Becky Slack for a section on cybersecurity in partnership with Fortinet. Hello, and welcome to this special section of the New Statesman podcast, brought to you in association with Fortinet. My name is Becky Slack, and I'm very lucky to be joined today by Chris Parker, MBE, one of the UK's foremost experts in security threats, and specifically cybersecurity threats. He's going to guide us through the contemporary threat landscape and some of the major cybersecurity stories that are in the news at the moment. Let's begin with a quick overview of the modern cybersecurity landscape. We hear a lot in the news about Chinese espionage, Russian disinformation, North Korean ransomware. Are these the key stories that our listeners need to be aware of? Well, yes, they are. But the fundamentals still exist in the threat environment because what we still have is a proliferation of ransomware threat as the dominant worry for all organizations out there, whether you're public sector, whether you're enterprise, this is the big concern. Of course, in the media, quite rightly, because of all the conflicts and things that are going on in the world, sadly, today, notably the Ukraine impact on Europe and the rest of the world. Yes, that's a, a big ask, isn't it, of us all to try and understand the state espionage and the state level and how it impacts on our organizations today. There's been a lot in the news recently about mobile phone apps that originate in China, just thinking about that state espionage issue and whether senior politicians and civil servants should be using these apps. Why are there so many concerns about this? Yes, it's difficult, isn't it? And I think when we think back in history, most of us can remember the phone tapping and those sort of basic things that happened in the Cold War. But when we go into the digital age, it's much easier for people to use software or backroom entry or backdoor entry into our apps and then perhaps extract data or maybe just messages which could be used later against people. And if we think about organizations, we none of us want our emails out there when we're discussing sensitive matters. And also there's a need for education of how we use our social media. And I don't think any of us need a reminder of that with a recent politician having been caught out on his WhatsApp messages probably all of us had a bit of a, a little moment thinking, oh, what about my own messages and what am I doing? So I think there's a need for sensitivity, a bit of training, but I don't see this problem going away because it's a digital weakness where things can be exploited in this way. Is it just messaging and the messages that we send to each other that is has the potential to be stolen from us or is are there greater threats with regard to these apps? 
Yeah, there are greater threats, definitely messaging, but obviously email and email security is still a fundamental and email still remains one of the worst vectors for letting the side down where a member of staff might click on something inadvertently. So that's letting something bad into our systems. But in terms of the messaging, for heaven's sake, we now work in a world where even footballers, when they're leaving the pitch, cover their mouths. So when they're talking to each other, so that their words are able to be interpreted. So everyone's getting more and more savvy about this. So I think all of us in our management leadership world need to wise up to this as well and just be a little bit more protective. That's really interesting. Can we turn to Russia for a moment and the Ukraine war? How has the war affected the cybersecurity space? I know that many people predicted that Russia would engage in a lot of advanced cyber warfare, but actually Ukraine stayed online, so to speak. Why hasn't this situation played out in the way that was anticipated? Yeah, I think that situation is fascinating because everyone expected poor old Ukraine, both in terms of physical warfare and cyber warfare, to get a pretty hard time to the point of defeat, didn't they? And as we know, history has proved differently. The reality goes back to 2014, when the initial outburst of violence in this conflict with the invasion of Crimea by forces which were not really wearing uniform. But at the same time, that was going on and was widely reported to be aligned to a major cyber warfare attack by Russia. And of course, this manifested itself against state infrastructure in Ukraine and power and other things. But Ukraine wised up pretty quickly. And historically, there's no better way for any organization or state to accelerate its defensive capability than a pretty bad day. And they had a pretty bad day in several weeks then. So they got wise to it. And the Ukrainian people, and I've visited Ukraine a few times myself, are extremely bright. And when I met them as many years ago, they're very bright people. They're very innovative. And I think we've seen that. They've used some of the best of global technology. Some of it's been assisted by obviously military efforts and advice from Western advisors in the last six years or more. But I think also any organization can use this technology. This is the message I would take for people that there's no difference between the technology they're using and the protective technology you can buy for cybersecurity yourself as an organization. And some of it, people might be alarmed to hear, is not actually that expensive. It really is not that expensive. It's about making sure people understand that their own IT departments and their own security are objective enough to look at what's available now, which is what the Ukrainians did work out the best things they can get on the market and get there. The reason why I say that's interesting is because we do have a problem in cybersecurity where some people don't keep up to date. And I think that's the same in any profession. If you're a legal or a medical professional, you have to keep up to date. Such is the pace of technology, automated technology especially, and we see that in Fortinet a lot, that people just aren't always aware of the latest protective measures and security measures they can take. So I would say that's what the Ukrainians have done brilliantly. I think they have certainly seemingly nullified that Russian threat. I think it's been a huge frustration to the Russians. It really is important that people take an interest in it and ask their IT departments, what have we got? And when was the last time we had a good look around over the fence and see what everyone else is using and what's new on the market? When we talk about cyber warfare, particularly within the Russian-Ukraine context, but within others also, are we talking about kind of cyber attacks on military points and key sort of military activities? Or is it about taking out critical infrastructure and other aspects of cyber attacks as well? It's a really good question, Becky. I think I saw a report recently that the Ministry of Defence in Ukraine has been the main targeted entity. And that's quite obvious in what's, what's been transpiring in their country tragically for the last year. But there's an awful lot of critical national infrastructure. In America, they use the term 
critical infrastructure, but it's still pretty obvious from the title. This is really important for how a country runs. So we've seen frustration, I would say, you can tell as a former military man, the fact that missiles are now being used to try and target power supplies and stations in Ukraine is an example that they can't do cyber attacks to destroy that critical infrastructure because it's very well protected. So the resort to old fashioned missiles is perhaps a way that we haven't thought of before, but I think we should do that. It's almost saying that there's desperation there because they can't attack the critical infrastructure. And what's really sad is when you see hospitals and things that are really quite sensitive areas of critical infrastructure being attacked. And we, of course, saw that with the WannaCry attack in the UK, didn't we, where with the NHS was attacked. It gives you a bit of a knot in the stomach. This is outrageously bad behavior, but it's what we're going to expect, unfortunately, in, in the time ahead. And we have to be ready for it in the UK and all the countries. And my understanding is as well is it's not just threats posed by foreign governments and state affiliated actors, but there's also a huge problem with cyber criminal gangs. Is that correct? That's correct. And there's in the Fortinet recent 2022 threat report, and it's, I would say that, but it's certainly an excellent read, but one of the best in the industry because it gives you a very good summary. I do what FortiGuard Labs put out from Fortinet because it's something that the ordinary man or woman can understand and read and say, okay, I get that. It is not full of lots of cyber mumbo jumbo and our people are really very good at explaining it in good terms. But I think though the increasing amount of automation that they're using is a big concern and that's something that we always have to stay ahead of. And in Fortinet sense, because we're very automated and very focused on being automated response through our integrated products, that, that that's the only way you can go. You can't rely on a human being now to be fast enough to match hundreds of thousands of attacks. And it is sometimes like that coming out your organization week on week. That's really interesting, but also slightly worrying and a bit scary. What can people do? And in particular, what can public institutions and governments do to try and mitigate this broad range of threats that we're seeing? Yeah, it is sometimes scary and concerning, but someone who's sat in the middle of the profession, I'm actually really personally quite confident because I think there's an awful lot of technology and effort going into the defense and the cybersecurity part of it of countries today and large organizations, public sector. You've got to keep moving forward. It's a dynamic. Um, and that's the same, as long as we all keep thinking like that. And I've said before that one of the big responsibilities of people at board level or executive level is to check the checkers properly and to ask those probing questions. And if you're not sure what questions to ask, get help and self-educate to make sure you're aware of those things like I've mentioned, the threat reports and from Fortinet and other papers that are put out to help you achieve that goal as a leader. What about the fact that everyone's working from home or a lot of people are working from home still, even though the pandemic is officially technically over? Has that changed things? Is a company's risk now because people are using their home systems rather than their work systems? Yeah, there's a concern I hear a lot, Becky, about what happens if I go home and I'm at risk. Ultimately, you are more at risk in old-fashioned terms if you moved outside the bubble of your IT department and what you could plug into. The reality of modern technology in the last few years has meant effectively you are exactly the same working from home in terms of safety and security as you are based in your office plugging into things safely in time inside your office building. The reason why that is, is that some of the big technologies and people have heard about VPNs and that ability to effectively have a tunnel that moves all the way through the digital space to your home. I think there's some great technology gains which not only secure us, 
but allow the actual digital gigabit, the bandwidth to stay constant for us to do our work, which of course is what we all want to do at home. And just one final question for you. When I speak to business leaders from all different sectors about what factors are going to influence their future success, they all tell me that a lack of skills is potentially going to hinder them. Is that the same for the UK cyber security space? Does the UK have the skills needed to stay out in front? Yeah, it's a really good topic, isn't it? Cyber skills is something I think we've been here before in the UK and other countries where we need to change culture and upskill. We went from manufacturing in the 70s to now a much more digital, in fact, a leading digital economy. Um, the skills are a big problem. Fortinet put out very recently the 2023 Cybersecurity Skills Gap Report, which was taken from lots of companies across the world. And some of the trends are still upwards in, in the wrong direction. So there's a lot of concerns about risk and a lot of people now leadership level are concerned about those risks. But certainly that people prefer to hire people with those skills, the side digital skills, but they're not on the market. So what I'm really proud of is that we're seeing an upturn in people saying they would like to train their employees internally in those digital skills or offer new employees those digital skills. And the great news is there's a lot of really good free training out there. And I'm an advocate for this, that Fortinet do an enormous amount of free training and we've pledged to train a million people worldwide, but other free training is available there from multiple suppliers on the market there. But there's one point we all ought to remember is that upskilling the humans is only part of it because you'll never better match the automated threat that's coming at us. And the big conclusion I'd take it's hand in hand, you need to have increased skills, but we also need to make sure that we are always matching the threat coming at us. And that means to have integrated and automated cybersecurity technology. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise, Chris. It's been a really illuminating discussion. It's been really good to hear in detail about some of the cybersecurity headlines that we see in the papers. And obviously, this is a rapidly evolving world and the threat vectors are constantly changing, whether it's cyber criminals operating in gangs just out to make money or hostile states trying to engage in espionage or attack critical national infrastructure. It's so important that we stay up to speed and one step ahead. You've been listening to a New Statesman special report for the New Statesman podcast, brought to you in association with Fortinet. I'm Becky Slack and the producer was Adrian Bradley. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Megan Gibson. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by May Robson. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.